Today we come to the end of our series of sermons on the book of Exodus, a series that sits alongside the focus group studies which have enabled many of you to explore these stories in greater depth. And all with a view to trying to understand the message that they still convey to us today, living as we do in a very different world, but facing our own challenges in faith and to faith in the face of a lasting formidable foe, the ever-present foe of self-centeredness. The study group series was entitled Freedom to Serve God. But having been set free from Pharaoh, that also entailed what was a journey of faith as well as in faith, or perhaps even a journey to faith. The series began with John leading us through his take on godly leadership, hearing God's call. Something which, as we see in the story of Jesus, as well as the story of Moses, can be very costly. It sometimes takes us to places where we would prefer not to be, but places to which we need to journey in faith. Martin then helped us explore the Israelites' experience of deliverance and the importance of obedience as the response of a redeemed people, a people called to share the good news of the deliverance God still offers in Jesus. I was next up with the story of the Israelites' discontent in the desert their lack of trust and obedience, a lack of trust in God's provision. Even though Jehovah Jireh, one of the names for God, points to the fact that he did indeed provide for their physical needs through manna and quails and water from the rock. After Pentecost... In relation to the giving of the commandments, it then fell again to John to share with us the calling of God, not just to Moses, but to all of God's people, in sharing the grace and mercy of God, to create a people who carry the name of God in their persons as chosen people, not for their own sake, but for others. And then last Sunday, in looking at God's instructions for the building of the tabernacle, the tent in the desert where God was to be worshipped, Martin reminded us of the variety of gifts and skills that God gives to enable us to live out our lives of faith, filled with the Spirit of God, enabling us to apply what we believe to everyday life. Today, as we bring this series to an end, we turn to the theme of encountering God's presence. 
as you will already have realized from Morag's reading of the Bible passages this morning, that our story consists of two parts. The episode of the golden calf, and then the giving of new stone tablets to replace those that Moses breaks in despair. But we'll come to that. With regard to the first of these, I want to focus on the theme of sinfulness, which this episode of the golden calf epitomizes and encapsulates what we might call the low point of the people's sojourn, at least from God's perspective. But thankfully then, their forgiveness by God which comes with the gifting of the replacement stones containing the Ten Commandments. For even if the people and their leaders were not true to their word, remember it was a covenant, even if they were not true to their word, God was true to his. And that's something that was maybe not as clear to them, perhaps, as it is to us who live with the legacy bestowed by Jesus Christ. But we'll come to that too. Meantime, let's head back to the wilderness of Sinai and to the foot of the great mountain of God. And we'll briefly go back in time and look at chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Six weeks on, the Israelites were getting restless. Where was Moses? Would they ever see him again? Had he died on that mountain? Remember, this was a fearsome cloud. Had he just abandoned them? Had he given up? What had become of him? They longed in that time to know again the presence of God who had been made manifest to them through Moses. So they turned to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said to him, Come make us gods or a god. The Hebrew's a bit ambiguous. Come make us gods who will go before us. And to their request, as Lorna indicated earlier, Aaron accepted and he ordered them to hand over all their gold jewelry, almost certainly the treasures that they had carried with them out of Egypt. And he melted them down and he fashioned for them an image. 
Now, the great risk of myself provoking the wrath of God by disobeying the commandments, I'm going to briefly display an image that depicts what God was furious with. An image created in gold of a calf. Most probably a bull calf. And it was an image not very much different from ones they must have been familiar with from their time in Egypt. Well, might we wonder, what was Aaron thinking of? What was he up to in using his artisan skills, of which Martin spoke last week, to create such a thing? What was he thinking? Well, perhaps even he realized very quickly his mistake. For when the people responded to the appearance of this image by saying, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt and began to bow down before it. Aaron was quick to say, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord Yahweh. And they built an altar in front of the image on which they could sacrifice their offerings. Some Jewish sources have suggested that there was no intent to worship other gods and that the calf was meant to stand in place of Moses as an intermediary, as a conduct or conduit of God's presence amongst them. And maybe we get that. After all, what I've read for is a very, very powerful intercession on their behalf from Moses. He got God to relent of what he tended to do. So we see evidence in that passage of a very, very powerful man for them. Others, however, have suggested that Aaron himself intended that this calf should be a place where God made his presence known. But they see it as something akin to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which came to be viewed as God's very throne, with the Lord himself sitting invisible amidst the cherubim. This same source, myjewishlearning.com, goes on, however, to reflect that even if Aaron or the people did have legitimate intentions, the people immediately fell to worshipping the calf and violated the Decalogue's prohibition against worship idols, as Lorna again shared with us. That was my understanding too. I was fascinated to come across, therefore, another Jewish interpretation from a site called thetorah.com, which published a paper, this one's definitely a bit more serious, because it published a paper by Professor Joel Baden, who is Professor of Hebrew at Yale University. And the paper asks the question, what was the sin of the golden calf? Baden suggests that it was not a breach of the first commandment 
you shall have no gods before me. Nor was it even a breach of the second commandment, says he. You shall not make for yourself a graven image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, though it comes very close. But he says they were not making an image of another god. No, it was a violation, he says, of the further instructions given to Moses soon after the Ten Commandments, what is sometimes referred to as the covenant collection. Baden makes the point that while the Decalogue, literally the ten words of command, that while this begins with the prohibition of the worship of other gods, the covenant collection of laws begins with a different kind of proposition. It gives instructions about how not to worship the Lord God, Yahweh. It comes just after the Ten Commandments. It's actually just chapter 20 and verse 23. Now, most English translations render that passage as, you are not to make gods alongside me or besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. And it seems as if it's almost replicating the second commandment. But the literal translation is, do not make with me gods of silver, even gold. And Baden suggests that with me does not mean alongside me or besides me, but really means something like, as for me, do not try to create an image of me in silver or gold. Now, I am no Hebrew scholar, and I could not really begin to judge the merits of these translations. But what is abundantly clear is that regardless of words, God became really angry with their action, really upset by what the people had done. And that was regardless of any good or ill intention on their part or errands. It was simply not what he wanted of his people. Obedience was what he required. And this was disobedience. Now, Baden, if I may quote him again, goes on to sound like any good Calvinist when he goes on to write, Because Yahweh did not reveal himself to the Israelites in any reproducible form, I spoke to you from the very heavens, he said, Therefore, proper worship cannot include any physical representation, especially a figural one, and especially one of precious metals. Well, although Baden, being a Jewish scholar, would not quote him, I would suggest that we find confirmation of this approach in the New Testament. Not least of all from Jesus himself, who to the Samaritan woman at the well said, 
The time is coming and has now come when all true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Paul, in writing to the Romans, also voiced criticism of what he called idolatry, which could well have applied equally to those ancient Israelites. He wrote, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We also remember the mocking words of Isaiah in chapter 44, a chapter which you really have to read in full if you've never read it before. Just a part. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. Such approaches to God. Any attempt to somehow capture him and hold him in our midst are not only futile, but sinful. If our genuine desire is to encounter the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, there is only one way to find him. And that is through his son, Jesus. For as the evangelist John wrote, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. What we need to cling to is Jesus, not to any false representation of him or indeed of his father. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul quoted what is believed to be a hymn or a creed of the very early church, teaching that the very nature of God was embodied in Jesus. And as we look back to Exodus, and to the second part of today's story in Exodus chapter 34. We catch just a glimpse of this. After Moses had destroyed the dreaded idol, and he burnt it, and he ground it down, and he poured it into water, and then he made the Israelites drink of their very idolatry, a very dramatic event. At the same time, he offered up a plea for God's mercy. And after a time of reflection, during which we are told God's anger subsided, 
We are told in Exodus 32 and verse 14 that God relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. It was indeed the Lord offering a fresh start. The fresh start symbolized by a replacement set of Decalogue stones. Replacement set given to Moses to replace the originals that he himself had broken in anger at his people, but also as a symbol of the healing or the renewal of the broken covenant. We near the end of our journey. Although the Israelites still have 39 years and 10 months to go until they as a nation enter the promised land. Well, there are just one or two things left to say about the why. First of all, that sinful generation who doubted God's providence, who questioned his word and his will, and refused constantly to walk in his ways. Well, they were destined never to enter the promised land. But their children did. For as God himself declared, it is not in his nature to leave the guilty unpunished. Punishment is very, very real. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, say the scriptures. Were that the whole picture, we would undoubtedly be lost in despair. But he also proclaimed to Moses as he renewed his promise, God said of himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That was the true nature of God. This loving God, always desirous of his people's obedience, but equally desirous to show his love. It is ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, his Son, Jesus who bore our guilt and our sin on the cross of Calvary, in whom we see embodied the compassionate and merciful God. In him we see the true nature of God. The one who abounds in love and faithfulness. But even so we get glimpses of this God. Even in the aftermath of the incident of the golden calf. For in these stones, this renewal of the promise, we see that God is true to us, that God is true to himself, that he is the one who forgives and saves. Amen.